Hi, this is Michael Collins. This is a one-time learning call for November 17th. Today we're going to talk about repaying student loans. Um, today's call will be about an hour in length total. We'll spend about the first 30 or minutes or so reviewing a brief that's been prepared that I'll talk about in just a minute. And then we'll have some time at the end for questions and answers from folks on the line. If you're on the call, if you can just mute it for now and then unmute it in about a half an hour once we're ready for the question and answer and discussion portion of the call, uh, we appreciate that. Um, if you're new to Lunchtime Learning, these calls are on a financial topic. These topics are uh, suggested by educators across the state of Wisconsin. Um, and then I've put together some background research on the particular topic. Um, that information is compiled into what we call a brief. Um, so today's brief is at the website fyi.uwex.edu slash financial series. Um, at the very top of the uh, Lunchtime Learning website, you'll see Maintaining Family Financial Creditworthiness and Managing Student Loans. And then there's a link to an issue brief with a blue underlined title. Um, that is then pulls up about a five-page uh, PDF document, uh, which uh, you should be able to follow along with on this call if you want to, or refer to later, or even use in your own educational activities if you want to. Um, today's call is being recorded, so um, if you want to go back and listen to the call later, you can. Or if you're not able to attend any of the lunchtime learning calls and you want to be able to tune in later, you can go back to the same FYI uwex.edu slash financial series website and right next to the issue brief will be a link for the mp3 file file if you're online now you can look and see that pattern has uh, occurred over the last few months as we've done these calls in the past there's a brief and then an mp3 file right next to it usually those are posted in a few days after the call itself um, in addition to the information that's contained in the brief there are a few links on the fyi site uh, for the Project on Student Debt, the National Consumer Law Center, and the Federal Student Aid Ombudsman. Uh, I'll talk about those during the course of the call, and you certainly are welcome to check those out on your own. Um, but those are websites that are useful background uh, on this particular topic. The um, This series, the Lunchtime Learning Series, if you're new to it, happens about every month. We actually will be taking the next two months off for the holiday break and the semester break here on campus. but. Um, we'll begin again, and I'll talk about those calls, uh, what's scheduled for uh, the, the winter and spring and at the end of the call today. Um, again, if you have questions, feel free to um, chime in as we go, but we'll definitely have some time at the end for Q&A, for discussion, and in particular, thinking about ways that you can take today's material on managing student loans and integrate it into your own educational programming or ways that you've already done it that you might want to share with colleagues so that they might benefit from your experiences and your advice. So I'm going to begin by going through the brief that's posted online. This is um, it got the code on it 2014-11, uh, which this designates this is the November uh, issue of the brief for this year. It's called Maintaining Family Financial Creditworthiness, Managing Student Loans. This is uh, a different topic from the topic we covered about a year and a half ago when we talked about financing education. So there's another brief you'll find um, on the FYI site that I mentioned earlier um, for brief 2012-11, which was around different ways to finance student loans and just education in general. 
the purpose of this brief is different. It's not about how to get the loans or what kinds of loans are available. It's once you have the loan, whether you like having a loan or not, you have to pay it back. And so understanding that options do exist for alternative repayment plans and what those options might look like. And so today's brief is really um, more about that second uh, side of, of the student loan market, which is how do you work with borrowers, work with learners who are trying to pay back their loans and need to understand what options might be available for them, um, given the kind of loan that they might have. I'm going to focus almost entirely on federal student loans. Um, and that's for a few reasons. One is that most, most borrowers who have loans do have a federal loan. It's rare that a borrower would have private loans. Um, also, many of the strategies that I'm going to talk about today are equally applicable for a borrower who has a private loan. Um, you know, a, a private student loan lender will often um, collaborate and cooperate along the same lines or similar lines to what the federal loans uh, will provide. So um, not universally, certainly, but understanding these options would help a borrower who has private loans. For a lot of borrowers, the key really is to make the federal loan affordable and then they just continue on the, the current path with their private loans if they have private loans at all. So again, the focus today is really on the, the federal loans. One of the nice things about the federal loan programs is that they are much more standardized too, so it's not a um, it's not as much of an issue where we have to hedge about well this borrower might be available might be allowed to do this with this lender. Uh, it's a much much more standardized kind of field. Um, when you talk to consumers or learners about their student loans, they oftentimes don't know what they have. <laughs> they know that they have uh, one or more loans, and they know that they have payments that they're struggling to keep up with, um, and they may not have a good sense of what kinds of loans they have and where they're from. But generally, when you're talking about uh, students who are more traditional, who've gone to traditional institutions, they typically would have uh, federal loans as sort of their first attempt to finance their schooling, and if they needed more than that, they might have taken out other loans. Some students may have also gotten loans paid for by their parents, um, where parents borrowed in their own name for the student's education, and that's um, another situation that we're probably not going to talk much about today and focus again just on the, the student loans that are directly held by students um, and that are from one of the federal programs. The kinds of names you'll see from federal loans are things like the direct subsidized loan or the direct unsubsidized loan, the Stafford loan, which could be subsidized or unsubsidized. So you'll see those kinds of names or hear those kinds of names. But in general, they're all federal loans, whether they're subsidized or not, and most of the rules and uh, options for repayment that I'm going to talk about today would apply to, to all of these loans. Um, there's been a lot of news lately about student loan debt and how student loan debt in the aggregate is growing um, and also how more students today are using loans than used to and the average amount that each student borrows is larger than it has been in the past. There are a range of reasons why that's the case. I mean, one is that more people of all ages are returning to school, uh, which we generally think is a good thing. Uh, we also know that other forms of credit, you know, sort of if 10 years ago you were borrowing and you wanted to borrow against your house, which if you had home equity, you might want to do for tax or other reasons, those options are less available today because lenders are much less willing to offer home equity loans. They're less willing to offer credit card loans. And, the one form of credit that is pretty easily accessible at relatively low interest rates are student loans. And so 
part of what we're seeing is just people moving their borrowing, maybe the borrowing that was going for education purposes before to specifically student loans. And some of it, too, is that student loans are easier to get and, um, you know, many schools are promoting student loans. Uh, meanwhile, the cost of schooling is increasing. And so those students who are borrowing are needing to borrow more in order to keep up with the cost of tuition, room board, and other kinds of expenses. So there's a number of reasons why student loan debt has gone up. Um, a topic for another day would be how to minimize the cost of those loans and not have as many loans. But today we really want to talk about people who've already taken out the loans. So that, that ship has sailed, uh, so to speak, and now they have to figure out how to pay back their loans. A common complaint we see is that people have graduated. They have the six-month automatic uh, deferment period after they graduate until they have to start making payments. And then when the payment starts, they don't have a job or they have a job that doesn't earn enough money for them to be able to afford their payments. And then they're in a position where they can't make those payments and they're either in default or they're trying to figure out some other kind of option. So we're definitely talking about people in that situation, new graduates who maybe don't have enough income yet to be able to afford the monthly payment that's stipulated in their student loan. But we're also talking about non-traditional students who maybe took out a loan to return to school or to obtain other kinds of educational opportunities later in life, um, who also might have student loan debt for that purpose, or even for people who graduated from school, had a good job for a while, were able to keep up with their finances and keep up with their student loan payments, but then fell behind because they had to drop an income, maybe a change in their family circumstances, maybe a change in their housing circumstances, maybe they moved to a higher cost market, or you know, maybe their family itself changed and they um, had a child, couldn't work, couldn't work, maybe divorce, other kinds of events that might have affected their ability to pay. So all those issues come up for people. Um, I think one of the main messages we want to try to get across as financial educators is that you know, the worst thing you can do is not pay, <laughs> that you can't just pretend like the loan's going to go away. And there are actually options out there and that people need to really assess where they're at if they think they're going to need to take steps to uh, make alternative arrangements to pay off their loans. They should do that. They should understand it's not a um, process that you want to do sort of on a whim. You want to have, have a plan and a strategy and really think about what it means to extend your loan potentially for a longer time period, maybe pay more interest, um, but in the end to get a payment that you can afford to make on a regular monthly basis. So first it's important to understand what a regular, quote-unquote regular, student loan would look like. Most student loans, when they're calculated um, for that first payment after schooling is completed and that first payment comes due, are calculated on a 10-year amortization schedule, meaning you pay interest and principal on a monthly basis until you pay off all that principal at the end of 10 years. And so the interest payments are large those first three, few, few years. Those first payments are mostly interest and as time goes on, the share of interest that's paid on those loans goes down, and the share of uh, payments that go towards principal goes up, and eventually that loan is paid off where, uh, in the last few years. Um, most of the repayment plans I'm going to talk about today involve extending that term, so going from a 10-year loan to a 20-year loan or even, in some cases, a 30-year loan. So obviously you're stretching those payments out over a much longer period of time, but you're also going to be paying interest over a much longer period of time. And so this means that the total interest payments, now again, we're not 
we're not bothering to adjust any of this for the time value of money. We're just thinking about payments of a dollar to dollar, whether it's now or in the future. Um, those interest payments can go up a lot when you extend out the number of years that a loan might be calculated. So I give the example in the brief of a $24,000 loan. And by the way, $24,000 is about the median that we see for borrowers with student loans in the state of Wisconsin who come from the UW system. So it's not an unusual level for a four-year uh, graduate of the university here. Um, over the 10 years, they would pay about $9,000 in interest payments. So, again, much of that interest would be paid in the first few years of the loan, and uh, as the loan goes on and the principal amount is amortized, then the amount of the payment every month that goes towards paying down the loan goes up. But that $9,000 in interest is on that $24,000 initial principal amount that was borrowed. If you extend that 10-year loan to 20 years, then the amount of interest more than doubles to $20,000. Now we're paying almost as much in interest over 20 years as we originally borrowed in the original principal. And if we extend it out to 30 years, then you're going to pay a total of $32,000 in interest, so more than was originally borrowed by some $8,000. So we're going to be borrowing um, the same amount in all these different, the same original amount of student loan in the beginning, but paying much more interest as the loan amounts extend. And that's the key trade-off to help learners understand is you really need to re- negotiate the term of your loan for a longer loan, that will absolutely make your monthly payment lower. But it also means in the long run, you'll be paying the loan for a longer time and paying more interest as a result. So it's a, it is a trade-off. A lower monthly payment today results in more payments and more payments towards interest over the course of the loan total. Um, but in some cases, the 10-year uh, amortization schedule, that payment that amount that, that would come due, um, next month and, and every month for the next 10 years is just too much and that people can't afford to make those payments and if it stays at that level, then they will effectively default. They won't be able to make the payments on time or they'll have to make a huge, huge sacrifices in other parts of their household budget that it's not a uh, feasible option. So then we have to think about what repayment options are out there for borrowers. The truth is, is that student loans, like all other forms of credit, there are lenders who are willing to negotiate. And so this is true whether you're talking about mortgages or credit cards. Um, you know, you, you can always ask for, for different repayment terms. And most borrowers um, who have tried this find that actually lenders are willing to talk. They may not grant you what you ask for, but they typically have some program or somebody who's willing to um come up with some sort of solution that might make monthly payments more affordable. The cost of default is high for a lender, and so lenders would like to avoid that if they can, and will generally try to work with a borrower to try to figure out some solution. The difference between the other kinds of debt I talked about and student loans are that, while it's true you can't be foreclosed upon for having student loan debt, um, so there's, you know, really all the lender can do is keep uh, putting collections and liens and garnishments and the kinds of things on you, um, you also don't have much of a chance of getting rid of the debt. And so while other kinds of debt can be eliminated through bankruptcy or through other kinds of ways to get the principal amount forgiven, it's much more difficult to do with student loans. And, you know, there's even talk about 
how student loans might result in garnishment of Social Security wages if people don't pay off their student loans by the time they reach their Social Security claiming age. So it's, it is a different kind of debt in some ways in that it's much harder to get rid of uh, and that borrowers really can't just sort of run out the clock, so to speak, and, and hope that their loan goes away. They really have to take some action to make payments on their loan. Now, there are um, this idea of negotiated payments. So one thing that any, any borrower can do is contact their loan servicer. And I'll talk a lot about servicers as I go through this brief. And a servicer may or may not be the original lender of the loan. There are a number of federal student loan servicers that are that's their specialty. That's what their market is, and they mainly work with borrowers uh, on collecting their payments and, and applying those to the principal and paying off the loan. Um, and so they very much are specialty financial institutions. They may or may not be a, a traditional bank, uh, but they really are uh, typically for federal loans one of a, a handful of institutions that are focused on the student loan repayment market. And so when I talk about servicer, that's who I mean, the, the parties that are responsible for collecting those payments and uh, crediting those payments back to the borrower. One common plan that most lenders will offer um, really without regard to federal loan or non-federal loan or any kind of qualifications is something called a forbearance. And a forbearance is simply to um, take some payments that are on the loan um, say they're not due now, but they are due later, and they might be due all at once at a point in the future, or they might be just sort of wrapped up into a, a payment at the end of the loan. And you can think about this as just saying, okay, I'm, I can't make my payments for the next six months because of some extraordinary circumstance. Can we just um, allow those six payments to be deferred and due, say, at the end of the loan or in, in 10 years or some, some term in the future? And lenders are generally work with people on this, they will continue to charge interest. So every one of those months, the loan will continue to accumulate interest. That means that the balance will be increasing. So we could get to a point where the loan is actually growing in size, or sometimes that's called negatively amortizing. It's growing. Uh, the principal is now growing because the interest payments are being financed for in future periods. And so... Um, you know, that's a, it is an option. It's definitely a short-term option, and it can get pretty expensive pretty quickly if, if it's something that a borrower tries to do for very long. The other thing that a borrower can do is ask the lender, even at the very outset of the loan, to come up with a different kind of payment schedule. Instead of paying the same amount every month, to actually do a graduated payment schedule where maybe they pay uh, 80% of the full payment for the first few years, and then they agree to pay 120% of the full payment in some later periods. Um, so they would eventually still pay the loan off in the same 10-year period, but they don't pay the same amount uh, every given year. And some some lenders call this a, an income-sensitive repayment plan. So this might be based on actually submitting income information and calculating a ratio of payment to income, or it's just a graduated payment plan that's related on how old the loan is. After so many years, you pay a larger uh, monthly payment after, you know, say, two years or three years. So there are different kinds of options that exist. Um, so those are sort of the, the privately negotiated options that any borrower can try to pursue for any particular reason. Then we get into options that are uh, more standardized because they're actually 
part of federal programs, and, um, and these are uh, programs that a borrower can learn about from the Department of Education and even seek assistance from the Department of Education with their lender to or lender or servicer to try to, to get them into place. Um, so the most drastic of all these is, is a loan deferment or loan cancellation. So a deferment means postponing a loan, and cancellation means actually having the loan canceled, having the amount of the loan forgiven. Um, these are both relatively rare events, but they, they can and do occur. Um, typically, there has to be some reason for these to occur, such as a, an economic hardship or um, something else that's happening with the borrower. The most common deferment reason is actually going back to school. So a, a borrower who has a loan for, say, a bachelor's degree goes back to school for a graduate degree. That can result in deferment. Um, there are deferments for other kinds of reasons, including being unemployed, uh, being in military or uniform service. So there's a number of other reasons that, that borrowers could apply for a deferment if they're qualified. Um, and typically those are those are temporary in nature, so it's just during uh, a period of uh, particular qualification. The other um, option for some borrowers, and even more extreme cases, is to have the loan canceled, to actually have the amount of the loan written off, much like you would see in a bankruptcy proceeding. Um, so the the extreme and obvious example is upon death. The, the borrower uh, estate is not necessarily um, responsible, so parents wouldn't be responsible for the child's student loan if the, the child passes away. Um, so death is one reason that student loans can be canceled. Um, a disability is also a reason that a loan could be canceled. So anyone who has a qualified for SSDI or DI, the, um, the federal assistance programs for people with disabilities would generally be qualified to have their student loans canceled. Um, likewise, if they uh, have, are applying for those programs and they haven't yet proven to um, the, the administration of those programs that they qualify for disability, but they have a letter from a doctor that shows that this is a, um, a work, uh, a, a disability that prevents work uh, indefinitely, and that the doctor's letter indicates that, then they could also have their loan canceled even if they haven't yet qualified. For SSDI or DI. Um, there's also a temporary disability where people can show that they have uh, a disability or their spouse or dependent has a disability, and so they can get a deferment for up to three years. And those deferments are uh, a little more generous in that the interest does not accrue like it might in some of the uh, other deferments we've talked about. Um, th those are the main ones. I mean, the, the I already mentioned the um, unemployment as being a reason. Um, some, anybody receiving public assistance uh, might also be eligible for a deferment, uh, and you'll see some programs where people are encouraged once they're on public assistance to apply for those deferments, although many of the programs I'll talk about in a minute would achieve the same kinds of goals. Um, so those are deferments and cancellations. Everything else I'm going to talk about from here on out is really not about um, not paying the loan or having the loan canceled, but about coming up with new payment options. And so. There's a table in the brief um, that summarizes, uh, I think, four of the payment options that are out there, um, and I'll talk through these as well. But um, these are these payment options are a little bit of a moving target. So several of these have been introduced in the last four or five years. So if you if you, if you haven't been a student loan borrower in a while, you 
may not have heard of these before, and the truth is that the, the terms and conditions of these um, do change. And so this is a case where we're seeing uh, policymakers trying to come up with the right mix of options for borrowers that that don't encourage people to borrow too much or encourage people to get into trouble, but also can legitimately help borrowers when they're in trouble. So the the oldest, oldest, I think, of these programs, or at least one of the most well-known of these programs, is called Income-Based Repayment, which is oftentimes in shorthand called IBR, or Income-Based Repayment. Um, it was started in 2007, and it has um, sort of grown over time. It is a program where a borrower can show what their monthly income is um, based on their annual tax returns, pay stubs, and other kinds of information that they might submit and then pay a monthly payment on their loan that is equal to 15% of their discretionary income. And note that the discretionary income is different from what you might think about as adjusted gross income or some other form of income that you might use in budgeting. The discretionary income is the difference between a person's income and 150% of the statewide poverty guideline. And these are adjusted by state and by the family size. So it's going to be a different amount, and you, you've probably seen poverty levels before, and you know that they vary by um, they vary by the size of the family. So it's going to be a different amount depending on um, the size of the family and the other situations in the household. Um, so that's the amount that the 15% calculated off of. Um, this is a, a basically a reduction in the monthly payment. Um, so that the borrower is going to be paying the loan for a longer period and they're going to be paying um, a, effectively a lower total amount of interest. And so the lenders in these cases, or the, you know, the servicers acting on behalf of the lenders, are going to be reimbursed effectively by the federal government for that interest for some part of their, their uh, the interest that they would have otherwise received into the 10-year payment plan. So there is an actual subsidy or a support system built into this repayment plan where the lender has uh, some incentive to get some of their interest payments back that they wouldn't get. Uh, the other nice thing about these payment plans is that after some period of time, and for the IBR, or Income Based Repayment Plan, after 25 years, any outstanding balance is forgiven. So as long as the borrower has paid 15% of their income for 25 years, even if they haven't paid off the full balance, the rest of the loan is forgiven at that point in time. Now, not everybody who wants an IBR can get one. They really do have to show that they are paying more than 15% of their discretionary income. Um, and so they have to apply and be approved for that process. And then it's not like the payment is just set for the rest of their life. They're going to have to continue to have their income level re-verified uh, to make that, that lower payment possible. Um, the other thing to remember about this idea of forgiving loans is that any debt that's forgiven, unless there's an act of Congress or other policy made to change the rules, any debt that's forgiven is income. So if I have a $100,000 student loan, I pay it off for 25 years under the IBR program, and I let's say I have $10,000 left, that $10,000 would be forgiven, but I now have a $10,000 reportable income that goes onto my salary. Uh, and other calculations when I calculate taxes this next year, which means I have to pay income taxes on that $10,000. And so that could be a significant tax bill. And for some families, that may be something that 
um, they have difficulty paying and have to come up with a repayment plan for their uh, income tax, they might be eligible on that forgiven debt. So it's something that people should be thinking about, uh, particularly if they're trying to, uh, you know, run, again, sort of run out the clock and hope that this large loan amount will go away. Um, it may actually go away if they follow the rules of this program, but then they still have to pay taxes on that amount. Um, you know, we we should note that at least with mortgages, when mortgages were being forgiven in the last four or five years, Congress did pass a rule that said that those were not taxable, although that rule has, is expiring. So um, it's not clear that uh, people today should be planning on the fact that their uh, any forgiveness of, of uh, student loans in the future might not be a taxable event. A uh, more recent version of the IVR program, the Income-Based Repayment Program, is called Pay As You Earn. Um, it's somewhat like the IVR program in that it's based on a formula as a percentage of the um, discretionary income. Um, but it has only a 20-year repayment period, so after 20 years, any amount of the loan that's still existing is forgiven. Again, could be could be a taxable event. Um, but these are only eligible for people who took a loan after 2011, so after October of 2011. So effectively, this is only available for relatively recent borrowers, newer students, people who've um, gotten in the student loan market more recently. And so people who have loans that they took out before 2011 or any loans that from a borrower that were pre-2011 would not be eligible for this potentially more generous program given that it has both a lower monthly payment and a shorter time period before the loan might be forgiven. Um, there is a another option for borrowers who have multiple loans, and I'll talk in a minute about them. Many borrowers do have multiple loans. Um, but if they've happened to take those multiple loans and consolidate them all into one loan, then there's a similar kind of program to the pay-as-you-earn program for people who've done that loan consolidation, um, which, again, is a, based on a formula of discretionary income. Um, one program that we don't hear a whole lot about is the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. And so this is a um, program for students who graduate from school, have a student loan, and then work in public service. And public service is relatively widely defined. It includes um, you know, working in government. It includes working for nonprofits. It includes working in law enforcement and um, public education. Um, so there are a number of different ways, and the military is another one. So there's a number of ways that um, people might qualify for this just based on the career track that they have or the jobs that they earn that they have. Many of these are the you know, the kinds of fields that don't pay as well, and so um, there's an acknowledgement that in these programs uh, people need to have some help uh, repaying their loans because they're not in high-paying fields. Um, effectively, this is the same sort of payment plan that you see in a traditional 10-year um, repayment plan for a student loan, but after 120 on-time payments, um, they could have any amount of their loan left uh, forgiven. So there's essentially it's a loan forgiveness program for any amount. And this is particularly useful for people who maybe had deferments or other kinds of um, delays. So they, you know, after 10 years, they still have quite a bit of loan amount still left. Um, so if they make the 120 payments 
uh, full and on time, then they could qualify for the special program, given that they work in these particular sectors. Um, these are the, the main programs that are out there, and again, the, the brief includes a table that summarizes these with a little bit more detail, as well as links that you can click on to go to the Department of Education website to learn more about each program. And at the bottom of that table on page two, there's a link to the repayment estimator. And so the repayment estimator will actually walk through different um, repayment options that might be available for a particular borrower. Um, and that tool in and of itself might be really useful uh, to, to show to uh, learners so they can understand what their options might be. Um, so before we uh, wrap things up, I think another important topic to talk about with learners who might be student loan borrowers is how to avoid getting into the situation where you're struggling. Um, and some of this has to deal with just being organized about student loan debt and understanding student loan debt terms. And some of this is understanding what kind of options might exist and how do you better understand what your alternatives are. So under the category of helping people avoid problems, um, one of the options that uh, many borrowers um, struggle with is making their payments on time because they have multiple loans and you know maybe the maybe they were in school for four years and they took out two loans each year so they have eight different loans and you know keeping up with all those payments can be challenging so for borrowers who are sticking with the 10-year automated payment and they can um to the 10-year uh, payment plan and they can make those those payments uh, well enough, they have enough income to make those payments. One option is just to do an automatic payment, so setting up an automatic debit, having a, uh, a process where those payments are made every month, and it's not a case of forgetting or losing track, but as soon as money comes in, money goes out automatically to, to make those payments. That avoids late payments, it avoids administrative mistakes, um, so that might be one way that people can keep organized and really sort of automate their, their repayment plan. Um, if people are really struggling because they have multiple loans, one option is to consolidate loans. So essentially paying off all of their loans with one single loan. So they have one single loan, one single loan term. Um, and sometimes that can be easier to uh, manage that. Um, that's called a loan consolidation. But for some people, the consolidation, if it's just for convenience sake, uh, might be overkill. And so there are... Um, there's online tools and other kinds of um, support systems that exist to help borrowers so they don't actually have to consolidate loans just because it's hard to read uh, you know, statements on a half a dozen loans. The uh, National Student Loan Data System is an online tool and there's actually some um, other apps, loan, you know, whether phone apps or online apps that access these data and make it really easy for people to sort of have a dashboard and look at their loans at a glance. Um, they can understand what loans they have, what interest rates they have on each loan, what the payment might be for each loan. Um, they can understand when each loan will be paid off because, remember, if they took out loans at different times, they may have different payoff times. Um, and they can also start to figure out, okay, if, if I have extra money this month, which loan do I want to pay off first? So they might pay off the loan with the smallest balance or the highest balance or the highest interest rate. Um, so there might be different rules that they want to try to apply. Um, but they should note that uh, you should note that if, if people do have multiple loans at multiple interest rates and they do pay extra, um, they really have to be specific about which loan is supposed to go to. And otherwise, the servicer might just spread them out equally. Uh, 
and so people do have to pay attention to those kinds of things. The other thing that people have to pay attention to is all the paperwork involved with their loans. And so, again, if you have eight or ten or more loans, really keeping a file for each loan so that you're clear about how much was borrowed, when it was borrowed, what the payments are, any documentation of contact or communication between the borrower and the lender, um, as well as the uh, once the loan is paid off, any kind of documentation that that loan was paid off. And a, you know, every loan should eventually have a letter that says, okay, you've paid it off, the current balance is zero. Um, and that's going to be an important document to retain to make sure that eventually the credit report catches up and that that uh, liability is, is eventually canceled. Um, so consolidation is, as I said before, one option available to people. Um, consolidation makes the most sense when people are both struggling because they have multiple loans and they want to try to change the terms at the same time. And so this might mean taking, you know, eight loans that are ranging from eight to 12 years in length and combining them into one loan that say has a 20-year length or maybe even longer. Obviously, the longer it is, the lower the monthly payment. Um, Typically, the interest rate on this will be fixed, but it will be fixed at the average. It will be fixed, meaning it doesn't change every month. Um, but it will be fixed at the average rate of, amongst all of those loans, you know, usually rounded up. So the uh, borrower might be better off because they're, you know, now have a fixed payment that's, that's predictable. They only deal with one payment, one loan, uh, and so that might make things easier for them. Plus, they might be able to extend the term, and that makes the monthly payment lower than before. Um, these... Once you consolidate, there's no going back. So you really have paid off those other loans. Um, but the consolidated loan is still eligible for most of those repayment options I talked about earlier. Um, probably not quite as generous as they might have been if they were separated loans, uh, but pretty close. And so for some borrowers, uh, this might be an option to consider, uh, particularly if they're not really struggling in their major hardship. Um, last thing I'll talk about is how to learn more about this topic. As I said before, this is a topic that's changing. And, um, we, as, as concern about student loans continues and as concern about the federal role in the student loan market continues, there's, there's a need to sort of keep, keep up on current events in this area. Um, one resource for borrowers uh, to learn more about what they can do or uh, to understand what options they might have is a, a counseling, I call it counseling, but it's a sort of interactive online tool that the Department of Education has. And this is actually something you can do yourself. It's, uh, the link is in the brief itself, but it's on the Department of Education website. And they, they walk through how these student loans are structured, what options for repayment might exist. They define different terms and different situations that people might be in um, and when it might be uh, a situation where they could apply or might be qualified for some of these special situations. And so these are um, some free online tools that are available widely, and the Department of Education has been promoting them. And certainly are an option to consider uh, both referring borrowers to or even doing yourself to better understand some of the options that are out there. Um, there are counselors that focus on student loans, and so if you, you, know, if you Google student loan debt help, you'll find lots of examples that are out there. Um, some of these are nonprofits or consumer credit counseling agencies or other agencies that are part of the uh, National Foundation for Consumer Credit and are offering programs either for free or with some grant funding. Um, you know, so they have these uh, programs that are legitimate and really are designed to help people. But it's hard because there's some programs out there that are charging fees and that are trying to 
um, help people, but also help the counselor or the lawyer or others involved in trying to do things that really people could do themselves if they talked to their servicer or went online and tried to figure these things out. So we, we have to be careful of the, uh, you know, the scams or the uh, service providers that are really not providing much in the way of service, despite the fact that they charge fees. Um, you know, we talked earlier about private loans and, and loans that are taken out by parents on behalf of children. Those really are more special circumstances. Those might be cases where uh, somebody might need more professional advice. Um, there are some resources available at the Department of Education website for borrowers of these kinds of loans. Not many people have these loans, um, but still it's an important area for some people to understand better. And again, we just want to make sure that people try to find the best, most uh, objective resources out there and that aren't, aren't steered into to more potential problems that, that people could uh, make, their, make their loan even worse by paying some fee to a third party that actually doesn't help them out. Uh, there's a, several websites I listed at the end of the um, brief that might be of use uh, as you're trying to understand this topic and even to find materials that might be useful in education. One is the um, the Project on Student Debt, which is a, an excellent website developed by the Institute for College Access and Success. It's a very well-respected uh, organization, nonprofit organization that um, you know tries to provide information with a focus on both policy and directly on consumers. Um, it's a very, they get information out in a timely way and they do a, they do a nice job about um, um, sort of distilling or translating when, when a regulation comes out from the Department of Education that isn't very clear. Um, they're oftentimes a go-to resource to understand what it means for borrowers. Um, another resource to look out is the National Consumer Law Center. They have their Student Loan Borrower Assistance website, and this is really a um, a place that borrowers can turn to when they're having trouble with the servicer, or they feel like their school or their loan, um, you know, did something to them that um, wasn't fair or didn't follow the rules. And so, this is again a nonprofit organization. It is um, focused on consumer law. These are people who study and, and practice consumer law. And it's not like giving legal advice, but it is providing good information so that borrowers can understand what options they might have and figure out how to get help if they're stuck, uh, meaning finding an attorney or a counselor who can be on their side and help them um, in their situation that they're in. Um, and then the last set of resources are actually from the Department of Education itself, um, the studentloans.gov website, um, and there's um, in addition to the loan calculators and the other kind of tools I talked about earlier, there actually is an ombudsman. So the ombudsman is a uh, sort of independent actor within the Department of Education who is on the side of the consumer or the borrower and who can advocate with the Department of Education, advocate with loan servicers who can um, try to resolve problems as they come up. And so I included a link to the ombudsman contact site. Um, and I've heard, you know, people who've tried to work with the ombudsman has um, have had some success, um, so they really do try to um, help people make better choices if that's what needs to happen or to actually facilitate or advocate with um, the lender or the agency if they need to or even the school in some cases. Um, note that they do have a, a request that people should try to work out their problems on their own first, and so they actually have a, a sort of step-by-step -step guide, you know, figuring out what the problem is, what is the, the thing that they need to intervene on. Um, and, and then allow the borrower to try to figure out the other things, the other issues um, on their own as much as possible. Um, so that's um, 
I think that's the end of what I wanted to talk about today, but I want to open it up. Um, and so any questions that you might have, um, any clarifications, as well as examples of how you may have used this in your own uh, community-based education programming and what kinds of resources that you might want to share with your own colleagues. Or has anybody uh, come into these kinds of issues in their own student loan uh, repayment experience or even experiences with the uh, online counseling that is available from the Department of Ed? Hey, Michael, this is Bev Dow. I haven't really um, heard much on that end, but um, my thoughts and some questions that are coming from people that I've chatted with is how do we help people who are going to school thinking of doing that find a better way or um, find different ways to look so that their cost of their education isn't so expensive? How do they make those decisions um, to help reduce some of that cost up at the, at the front end? <clears throat> and I don't know what resources are out there, but um, like, you know, how do you make those conscious decisions between do I attend this private school, obviously, versus um, one that's not. There's some decisions making there, but even some other alternatives. Yeah, has anybody come across any um, any programs that work with, with students, maybe even at the high school level, to start thinking about how they're going to finance education? Right. I, mean, I don't think I've, I've seen anything myself. So um, it was a topic that we addressed briefly in the, the uh, I think it was November 2012. Um, I think that was the, the date of the lunchtime learning um, around financing higher education. But that was less about making choices around college, but just borrowing or not borrowing and then how much to borrow. Right, yes. Yeah. I think it's a good thought, though. So if people have resources that they come across and want to share, we certainly welcome. Michael, this is Beth Rank in Burnett County, and one of the things that um, I don't mean to bring up another problem, and maybe this isn't the time. Let me know. Um, but one of the things is that um, I have a car loan. And I have student loans, and people have told me various things throughout the years. Oh, keep student loans because then on your taxes it looks better, and you still have income to, or whatever, you can still get credit on your taxes for it or something. How do I know where the where to find those resources, or what's the best advice for that? Because I'm not the only one who's encountered that nugget of advice, and I don't know if it's good or not. Yeah. Um you know, so there's there's all kinds of advice you'll find about oh, this debt's better than that debt because the interest is tax deductible or um, um, you know whether it's a mortgage is one we we see a lot or um, you know different kinds of probably the main one we see. Um, you know, the thing to remember about any of the tax advantages of whether it's student loan debt or, or home mortgage debt 
is that you have to be able to itemize your tax deduction to make it really matter. Um, and so for a lot of people, they don't itemize, and so it's not that it's not that important to them. Um, and then for the student loans, the the amount of interest you can deduct is actually capped. So the there is a benefit, but it's not nearly as large as say the the mortgage interest deduction. Um, and so you know, it's, in the end, it's going to be a case by case basis of of um, you know what the the tax advantages might be. And certainly, the tax advantages aren't going to outweigh say going from a 10-year student loan to a 30-year student loan. So, if, you know, if the idea is, well, if I uh, lower my student loan payment for, and make it for 30 years, I'm somehow getting a bigger tax benefit, that's probably not a <laughs> not, not a great logic. I, I think for me, it's like um, if I if I line up, you know, my interest rate, what are, what are people charging me for interest? My student loans fall higher than my car loan. But which one's better? You know, they talk about the good debt versus the bad debt. Right. Does that change things, or what's the thought on that then? Well, I think you know we we would probably classify both both car loans and student loans as good debt because they're buying you you know something to, to a point. I mean, to the, the to the point that student loans are helping you make more money because you're more employable and you can make more money. That makes sense. If you're using student loans to finance pizzas, then no, that's not that's not good debt. So it's hard really to make those distinctions. Likewise, on a car loan, you know, a, a car that gets you to work and allows you to to be more efficient and effective um, is is probably good. But there's at some point where if you're financing fancy rims or something else, then that probably isn't as, as much a good debt. So it's hard to make those sort of blanket assertions that this is good debt and that's bad debt. The interest rate is certainly one key way to make a decision about what to pay off first. But also the loan term matters because, you know, maybe a loan has a lower interest rate but a very long term. And so, you know, you have to sort of balance what's the... And there's also the hassle factor of, you know, if you have a relatively small loan and a relatively small loan amount, then it's just one more payment to keep up with every month and occasionally you might miss it because it's hard to keep up with it because it's just small and annoying. Maybe it's better to pay it off. So, I mean, there are some non-economic reasons, too, that sometimes people will pay off a loan. Thank you. Other questions or clarifications that people have or examples of ways that you've integrated this into your own education activities? I don't think you'll see a lot of curricula out there right now that include much around student loans, and in part that's because these topics have become just more recently uh, popular, but also because these, the, the kinds of programs that I just walked through are relatively new. Some of them have only been around for a few years. Um, so it's it's one of those areas that if you're going to do some programming in, you have to, have to sort of stay up, up to uh, date on what, what the current rules are. Uh, the project on student debt, the, the, the site by Tikus that I mentioned earlier, I think is a good resource. It also has a, um, a clickable map in it, so you can go to their website, um, which is just projectonstudentdebt.org, um, click on the state of Wisconsin, and then it shows for each of the, at least the four-year schools in Wisconsin, the average debt level and um, you know various other financial characteristics of um, 
student loan borrowing. And for some of the schools, um, you know, the rate of students with debt is quite high, you know, where um, the majority or even three-quarters of students do graduate with some debt. And so it really does vary quite a bit school to school. So if you're on one of those active campuses or you're serving people who are perhaps alumni of those various campuses, uh, it might be uh, might be something to look at to try to get an understanding of some of the data behind the universities in your your particular community. The um, TICAS website also has a number of useful fact sheets and um, you know other kinds of um, updates, both from research and from the data that's put out by the Department of Education. And so there's, uh, I think, some good resources there that are uh, generally evidence-based, and uh, many of which are probably useful as is, even to work with with a runner around or use as a handout in class, that kind of thing. All right, I am uh, I'm going to welcome any questions that might come in later by email or, or however else. Um, but I also do want to remind people before we go that we are going to not be meeting in December or January, but we will meet in February. So February 16th is the next lunchtime learning. We're going to talk about the basics of retirement and estate planning. And by this, I don't mean, you know, detailed strategies <laughs> that might you might engage with with an estate attorney. But rather, as you're working with, you know, modest, relatively modest families and um, the issues that they might be confronting, especially people who maybe don't have an estate attorney or don't have the resources to work with an attorney, um, to think about how do we train people or how do we educate people to think about retirement and estate planning basics, uh, so the real the sort of basic levels for the for the average consumer as opposed to somebody who's got massive assets that they're trying to work with a professional around. Um, we're going to move on from that into March talking about the role of financial caregiving. So this is the idea of when you have a senior, maybe a parent or somebody else that you're um, taking care of, maybe physically, that there might might be financial roles that you are playing, which actually puts you in a legal fiduciary role and sort of helping learners understand what that means and how it affects them. In uh, April, we'll talk about financial coaching, which we've talked about on these calls before, but specifically some uh, some more structured applications and programs around financial coaching. And then we'll end our, at least our academic year in May with our annual book review. And so beginning uh, probably in January or so, I'll start to be asking some of you about books that you've come across or seen that you might want to share with the group um, in that May session. So thanks all for being part of this, and we will talk to you in February.